1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with poet, contemplatives, Padraig Otuma and Marilyn Nelson. There's a shorter produced version of this at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Were we supposed to start at 9 or 9.15? Okay, good. (laughs) Oh, this is the famous Chris. Especially if you've listened to the unedited interview, this is Chris. <laughs> what a beautiful way to start the morning. I want to just make a couple of little um, little announcements. I, first of all, I, I want to um, call out one person in particular on our team, Lauren Dordal, who actually, yeah who really who coordinated us, this ha- this happening, and we didn't know how much we needed her until after we had her, and the great producer in the sky was looking after us, and, and she really made, she's unflappable and elegant, and just um, really, we, we couldn't have done it without her, and I then also have to thank Aaron Farrell, who is our COO who came on in the fall and also knew to hire Loren, which I did not know that we needed that person. Um, uh, and then I, and everybody else, we're gonna, I want you to meet everybody else and hear all their names in the course of these days. Um, I also want to say, you know, I often go to conferences and convenings and, you know, we know with our children that when they are forced to sit in a classroom for more than 45 minutes, it's excruciating and horrible. And then we do all these events with adults where you're supposed to sit for an hour and a half and it's excruciating. So I just want to say, please feel free to stand up and walk around or go get a breath of fresh air and... Our space on Loring Park is shoe-optional, although I'm the only person who walks around without shoes all the time, but I really want to say, like, this space is shoe-optional, so take your shoes off and really get comfortable. (laughs) And here we are. Um, I love it. Naomi, I love that that William Stafford line, and it's a poem called Vocation. I almost mentioned it last night. Your job is to find out what the world is trying to be. And you know, if you just went on some of the surface things that are loudest and most visible, you would think the world is trying to turn inwards and backwards, but we all know. You know, it's that whole story. It's like what part of what we're called to is invite and nourish the world to be what it doesn't even know it wants to be. You know, it's best self. And I think that's a good way to start with, I have two poets with me to start here, and there, there are many other things in addition to poets, but you know, I think we're not starting with poetry and ending with poetry for the sake of poetry, but for the sake of what, to bring into the room, the place in us poetry comes from. What it, what it gives voice to about us. Um, I mentioned Elizabeth Alexander last night, another definition she gave me that that I found really useful about poetry, is poetry gets at undergirding truths. And that's something different than truth as mere fact, which is so contested, undergirding truths. We scarcely know how to talk about undergirding truths in this culture. We know how to talk about issues and fights. And David White also said to me when I interviewed him last year, poetry is language against which we have no defense, which is again such a contrast to the way we use language now. It's weaponized. Um, And Marilyn said to me when I interviewed her, I think like a year and a half ago or something, um, you go to listen to a poet and you leave not only having learned something about the poet's reality, but also having learned something about the reality you are living. And she said, I guess that's what communal pondering is. And we'll come back to communal pondering. So Marilyn Nelson was born in Cleveland, um, grew up in a military family. I love there's one place where you talk. I, I, I remembered this. I, you tell me if I'm, if I'm making this up. But when you and your sister... <laughs> When you would move on to new places, because you moved around a lot, mm-hmm. that you would imagine that the places you lived before didn't exist anymore?
0: Yes. I yeah. didn't, we didn't imagine it. I believed it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so you left, and yeah. they went away. Um, <laughs> your father was in the last graduating class of Tuskegee Airmen. Mm-hmm. And you've said that your early ethical training came from reading your father's old college poetry books. And Marilyn is a storytelling, history-telling poet and writer for adults and children. And she's very esteemed as a poet among poets. She's a chancellor of the American Academy, Academy of American Poets. Um, Padraig Oetuma uh, grew up near Cork in the south of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. But he has lived for many years now in Northern Ireland, where he's now a leader of Corrymeela, which is which is a community that helped bring peace to Northern Ireland over many years and remains a beacon and a refuge for people around the world. And we were so privileged and had such a thrilling time visiting Corrymeela a couple of years ago. And some of you may have heard some of the shows from that, um, including the poet Michael Longley, which was our show for Election Day 2016, which seemed like the only thing that was right, a poet on that day. Um, and Padraig is a theologian and a peacemaker and a poet and a poetic writer of prose. I really felt when I was in Northern Ireland, and I've always felt speaking with Padraig and, and his uh, community these last years, that it's one of these interesting things about history that the Northern Irish have become our elders. Right? When I was growing up, you know, just a few decades ago, that was one of those places you'd point out in the world where those people have been killing each other forever. They'll never get along. And now they are walking this daily, hard, redemptive work of being at peace. And uh, we have a lot to learn from them. Um, I want to read a little something you wrote about Corimila. was begun by Reverend Ray Davy, together with some students from Queens University in Belfast in 1965. These were the days before the troubles broke out, but the days when troubles were brewing. There was a need for a place of friendship. I love this. A soft place for hard conversations. A meeting place where hostilities could be explored within the context of hospitality. Um, okay, so here's my adapted question I came up with. <laughs> um, and I don't know who I wanna start with. Marilyn, I'll just start with you. As you think about you know this moment we inhabit, I wonder if there's something in the spiritual background of your life, um, your childhood or your, or your vocational life, um, however you would define spiritual, something in the spiritual background of your life that is, that is really especially present to you right now, and that may mean troubling you, motivating you, nourishing you.
2: Hmm.
0: I'm not sure. The moment we inhabit now is very fraught. and. Uh, I suppose the teaching, the learning of my background that's most present to me now is, the, is a historical memory of uh, where we came from, what our ancestors survived, how in African-American culture, there is a hope, a fierce hope that sustained people in spite of everything. And um, I don't know, I've told students often over the years that just touching that history, just imagining how people went on is a source of strength. Is a um, but um, I didn't. I I just finished reading a very powerful novel about um, refugees in the present moment, and reading their experiences reminded me very much of the experiences of the Middle Passage and those earliest days of slavery and of Jim, Jim Crow and made me realize how hard it must have been in the past and how hard it must be now for many people to hold on to the um, that resilience of, of I guess the hope is the only word I can I can come up with. How hard it is to hold hope Because the the forces of the world seem to be intent on destroying our grasp on on hope. So I guess that's the truest Mm -hmm. thing I can say about my own experience.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank
3: you. Um, There's two things that come to my mind. Uh, The first is, so when I got to primary school, um, I didn't know that I spoke two languages. And uh, the teacher was introducing us to speaking Irish as if that was new for us all. And the teacher said a few words and said, now you won't have understood what I've said, but I'm going to teach you uh, how to speak Irish. And I felt like something was wrong because I understood perfectly what she'd just said. Because I spoke two languages, I had two tongues in my mouth without realizing it. and. What that strikes me, I mean, I continually refer back to the realisation for me that my first instinct was to think, oh, I'm wrong, because the teacher said that. I trusted authority. I'm a good Catholic, and so (laughs) I've been spending my life trying to become a bad Catholic (laughs) because I I had an innate trust of authority. And when the teacher said, no, you won't understand what I've just said, I thought, "Okay, that has to be true. And what that teaches me is that it's important to listen to the intuition, yeah. because we might know more than we know we know. And that's, uh, yeah. I think that's a deep trusting relationship we have to have with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing that strikes me in terms of the spiritual background of my childhood is the Stations of the Cross. I, uh, in Catholic and Episcopal churches, you'll find 14 images um, uh, from the time that Jesus of Nazareth was condemned to death to the time that his corpse was laid in the tomb. And they are just 14 stopping points. And um, for 10 years, I did the stations every day. And what that teaches me is that even the most depraved story of abduction and torture and murder by the state can be treated with dignity when we allow ourselves to approach the narrative of that place as an act of protest and to find ways within which we can turn to the worst kinds of stories and to mine them for a practice that brings hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever, and what I like about the Stations of the Cross is that they don't say, oh, but then there's the 15th one where it's all lovely. Fantastic. Um, in the traditional understanding, there isn't a 15th station. The idea is to find hope in the practice of what, what was seemed to be the worst. And it is the worst. There's no pretense that abduction and torture and murder are anything other than abduction, torture and murder. However, there is the understanding that within it, we can discover some kind of hope, the hope of protest, the hope of, hope of truth-telling, the hope of generosity, the hope of gesture, even in those places.
1: Mm. <laughs> that, um, yeah, that, all, that really takes me to a place I, I think we should just start, which is, you know, uh, one of the... There's this idea out there now. We're rediscovering the power of story. Let's just say that, like all over the place in every discipline, and that's wonderful because we'd forgotten the power of story. But then there's a way that that gets trivialized, right? And like you know, we're in, in podcasting. Right? It's like storytelling, storytelling, storytelling. But um, we romanticize and simplify s- storytelling too. I wanted to read something you wrote. Um, I think oh, I said you. I think you said this at a TEDx in Ireland. Um, these are the kinds of things we need for the tired spaces of our world. This is the way we need to move forward in a world that is so interested in being comforted by the damp blanket of bad stories. (laughs) We need stories of belonging that move us towards each other, not from each other. Ways of being human that open up the possibilities of being alive together. Ways of navigating our differences that deepen our curiosity, that deepen our friendship, that deepen our capacity to disagree, that deepen the argument of being alive. This is what we need. This is what will save us. This is the work of peace. This is the work of imagination. You said that there's an Irish phrase, valuing story. What is that? The, well, is I mean, that one way to get at like this a conversation I want to have about?
3: Yeah, well, it, in, in Irish you'd say massa chorer and scale, and that means to put respect, value, substance. And so it, it, it's, an, it's a deeply engaged project. And so to find a way to put um, mass, respect, on the story requires a, a, a really muscular engagement with it. And that, I mean, you know, in poetry there's this idea, and all literature of kill your darlings, you know, if you think that is the killer line in the middle of it, a wise practice is to go, well, let me take it out, even as a practice. What will happen? if I begin the poem somewhere else, if I start somewhere else. And I think in our stories of nationality and belonging, that's so important because we can have ways within which we say, the story of my people is the following. And that can become an idol. Uh, Religion has taught us that over centuries. And it isn't to say that you have to totally reject it, but Mm -hmm. that it's good to practice beginning in a different place because it might open us up to something that even surprises us. Um, I've loved the radio for all of my life. I've always uh, had the radio on. And uh, one of the things you notice these days is you might have this, you know, pe- let's fo- people phone in. Uh, something, ha- something has happened and they'll say, let's listen to our audience now. People phone in. Or we've got two people on here and they're going to talk about something. And sometimes the way it's set up, you can go, I could write the script right now. You know, um, this is utterly predictable and uh, and it's painful because people aren't speaking about trivial things. People are speaking about things that matter and things that will hurt people and cause an increase in threat for particular individuals. And yet we treat it with such lazy language. That's the damp Mm -hmm. blanket of storytelling Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned.
1: Stories without the rigor Mm -hmm. that there's...
3: Totally. And I like the idea of how can we be surprised?
1: I'm sorry, I just repeated
0: your term, "lazy language." A good, a good term, I think. Mm. There's a Native American writer, N. N Scott Momaday. Yes, yes. yeah. Who talks about um, storytelling in his own tradition, about sitting with an elder and having the elder gift you with the elder stories. And uh, Mama Day says that um, it's, a, it's a way of being called into this person's presence. You're called into this person's presence and gifted a story. And I, I think, I know, I feel the older I grow, the more clearly I understand that that's what we are, is our stories. That's what we are. That's all we are. We erase our stories. We erase our existence. And learning how to tell the stories, learning how to understand the stories, what they teach us and what they can teach other people, is really the essence of our existence here, I suspect.
1: Yeah. Um, and, you know, Jen Bailey, who you all met last night, Rev Jen, um, she has reminded me that in the Greek, in the biblical Greek, the language, the word apocalypse, is, it actually means an uncovering. And I, I feel like that's a good way to talk about the moment we're in, the uncovering of and I think Marilyn, that's something you really do in your work—is kind of get into, uncover the fuller story that wasn't told, mm. um, that wanted to be forgotten, that was too painful to remember.
0: Yeah, but you, but, but you—I'm sorry—I'm having a hard time hearing. That. Yeah. Uh, but I—I uh, I really feel that uh, my job, at least, is to find stories, uncover them, even especially painful. Story, stories, stories mm-hmm. that that people want to avoid hearing. Um,
1: and and this project you've been working on. Can you? Is it better if I move up? If I move closer? Can you hear me better? I think it's better for me if you if you if I move back. Yes. Okay. I, yeah. It's something about the room. I'm actually having a little bit of that too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, you told me about this when we met before. This project you've been doing for a church in Connecticut. I, yes. Mm-hmm. And. Honestly, I feel like this could be a template for all kinds of our organizations, mm-hmm. what this church has done mm-hmm. with you, mm-hmm. which is going back and telling the story they haven't told. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I, wanna let you, I wanna let you talk about it, but I just, you know, just to read, you know, it starts in Lyme, Connecticut in 1666, the Meeting House. These are sounds the landscape has never heard. A strange human language, axes and saws, iron hammers pounding home iron nails, the tromp of boots, the the cough of musket fire, and then on and on, like this new experience for the land. And it goes through, you know, other events in the story of the church that I'm sure the church The church didn't tell until now, and the thing is they want to tell it now. So, Lyme, Connecticut, 1729, two members in good standing of the church record and sign a business transaction. In consideration of the sum of 25 pounds, one mulatto girl of three years old called Jane to have and hold, possess, and enjoy as his own proper estate forever during her natural life two members who have seats in the front pews, and then you've got a copy of the deed of sale. Mm-hmm. So this church has actually gone back and told more of its story.
0: It's very unusual, I think, um, to have the uh, the courage required to tell those stories, uh, to find what they teach. Um, this is a story in which um, uh, the, this is a church which was founded. They just celebrated their 350th anniversary. And the first pastor kept slaves in the parsonage, in the attic of the parsonage. I don't think anybody in the church, or they hadn't thought about it, um, but I don't think they knew their own history. The fact that many members of the church live in a very Upscale community, which was once set aside for Native Americans. It was intended to be their place. Nobody remembers that now. Uh, now it's where you live if you have a lot of money. Um, and it was a painful uh, a painful responsibility handed to me. To present these people with their own histories. Um, I, I loved working on this project, but it was also full of shocks and disappointments. I wanted to believe better of
1: humanity. I um, was disappointed. Yeah. So- what happens when a community? Because I really do like I read this story, and I think this could be a template. You know, this is also a moment when we're talking about how do we reckon? How do we reckon? And uh, nobody knows how to begin, or to go that far back, or how far back do you go? Mm-hmm. And uh, t- what happened? What What was the experience for them? To have this uncovered and to reclaim it as who they are and where they came from.
0: I only know from a few encounters with members of the congregation who thanked me for giving them their story. I think it it also helped them to be able to see their story uh, as told through the eyes of someone who didn't inherit their history. These are people who've lived in the same community, many of them, for 300 years. They're living in the same house their great-great-great-grandfather built. Uh, And to have an outsider come and point out to them the discrepancies between what they believe now and what was believed in the past was probably difficult for them. But it also, I think, was a way for them to appreciate where they came from and where they are now, the amount of growth, that this is an extremely progressive church now. Um, and I think it's possible for them to be, to be very proud of what they came from. I'm reminded, I, I, a friend of mine called a couple of nights ago because... Um, There was a rebroadcast of an episode of uh, uh, Skip Gates' program, So You Think You Know Who You Are, Um, the episode in which he was um, looking at the history of Ted Danson's family. And a friend called to tell me it was on again. I had seen it about a year ago when it was first broadcast. And it, it's, a, it's a, a story that I think um, makes clear the kind of issues that came for this church, too. Um, Ted Danson's, one of his great-great-great-grandfathers, was a man named Oliver Smith, who, as it turned out, was the master, the owner of an enslaved man named Venture Smith, who published the story of his life. So he's famous. Oliver Smith is not famous, but Venture Smith is. And Venture tells the story of moving from one master to another until he got to Oliver Smith, who was the man who allowed him to do extra work in the evening and keep the money he earned and purchase his freedom. It was Ted Danson's great, great, great grandfather. And uh, Danson's response to this was very interesting because I would have expected him to be, oh, wow, I'm so proud of that. But his response was, I'm so shocked and ashamed that my family owned slaves. And I think that complication is the kind of complication that happens in this congregation too. On the one hand, you can be proud of seeing that your ancestors turned away from a horribly inhumane um, uh, institution, But on the other hand, you have to deal with the fact that they were in the middle of it. Yeah, and it took 300 years. years. Yeah, yeah,
1: Um, yeah. This this language. Well, do you want to say anything about
3: that? I'm thinking about how sometimes when we look at our history, we have a visceral response of shame, and it's no wonder we don't want to look at it. And Mm -hmm. shame begins in the body. I think shame's first language is the body, and Then we put language around it, and then we put protections around it, and then curricula and policy and um, elections around shame. But it begins in the individual language of the body, Mm -hmm. and and it's understandable that it is so seizing of us. It is like being arrested by something. I mean, it 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 does stop you. And um, I've got a. I was trying to think for a long time. What's a counterpoint? Not a challenge, but what's a counterpoint to shame? And, and I think it's trust, or, or one, one of the things. I mean, I, these aren't exact sciences, but there is a um, phrase in Irish, uh, if you want to say, I trust you, and in Irish, we have an understanding that why bother using one word when you can use ten? Uh, so. Uh, and so it's a long phrase to, to speak about trust. And the phrase is You are the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore. And when we can look to our shameful pasts, and. In national contexts, we all have shameful pasts. The Irish, we love to talk about, You know, aren't we all against the British? However, then, when you look at the history of the Irish in Jamaica and Australia, we went there and did everything that was done to us. And so we didn't learn very well from our hunger that drove us from the land. And so I find that there is shame to be discovered in so many narratives. And that some way of thinking, to whom can I turn... To find my place of standing when it feels like the world is on fire. Law on the Khashatina, on the day when my feet are sore. But sore there can also be heard as meaning on fire. And so I think that really deepens that experience. So I've got a poem because it brings in history into it. Now I can't remember. Oh here it is, 44. I'll read a bit of it. Umart Law on the thinna. There are some things that can't be stated quickly. Only history can meet us on the day when our grief greets us. It's only when I've sailed across an ocean meeting you that I can meet you truly. And I see you in me and the me in you sees through me. You are the place of standing on the day when feet are sore. You are the harbors landing on the day of the waves roar. You are the arms enfolding when I reject my flesh. You are my gentle breathing when I have lost my breath. And so, though the fright time hinders, the night time lingers for us to grow inside her. And we will find her tough. And we will jostle with this mother, desperately wishing for another way of birthing out our living. But she is giving us our own selves. And we we might live to tell the tale. And we might find family on the day when the gale takes us into harbour, into shelter, into holding, into home. And and for me, that's the invitation of a painful history, Mm -hmm. is to do that together. Mm -hmm. And that is always difficult, but it is always true. And anything else fails us.
1: I think what you're also pointing at is the beyond of words. Yeah. Like the, those of us who reverence words also know their limits. Mm. Um, right? It's yeah. because it's so much of what happens in the body. And, you know, not to belabor the point, but I think, uh, I mean, you've also talked about this, Marilyn, that poetry is also about silence. Like you mm-hmm. said, poetry emerges from silence. And something enlightened, it feels to me, about this this church, this institution, asking a poet to look at their history
2: mm.
1: and to tell it in words that leave room for silence, for what mm. can't be said.
0: Mm. Mm. I, um, uh, one of the poems in, the, in my little book about this church history is about a, a time when the church, the meeting house, was burned down. And in the in the poem, it's my imagination. I hope this happened. Um, but in the poem, everybody in town, the free people, the enslaved people, everybody is rushing around with a bucket brigade trying to put the fire out. And um, I have <clears throat> a couple of lines in which um, people look into each other's eyes and see their own fear in each other's eyes. And I think um, that experience of sharing a crisis beyond expression, beyond words of looking at each other and seeing one's own experience is probably I hope it's true, anyway. Yeah.
1: Um, I want to just uh, just add, and maybe talk about one more thing up here, and then we're going to open it up to the room for about 20 minutes. Um, we're going to do that in the, t- this morning and on, uh, actually, in the morning sessions, a little bit of time for a whole room conversation. Um, I didn't say this last night. One thing I felt as soon as I visited this place the first time is uh, this, this was actually built on the, uh, around a Bible college. There was a Bible college here for generations and generations. And uh, the Bible college ended, and, and Scott and 1440 came in and created something new. But I really feel here, I, this feels to me like a place where people have been praying for a long time. Um, and Padraig, you've been writing, um, I mean, you've been praying for a long time, too. <laughs> but you have this book, um, and both of these books, The Meeting House and, I, is this one in the, I hope this is in the uh, bookstore, so. probably, anyway, you can get it online. Um, you've written this daily prayer book for the Corimila community. Just want to talk a little bit about prayer as a form of words. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, um... (laughs) I mean, I could read, you know, let me read something beautiful you wrote. Prayer can be a rhythm that helps us make sense in times of senselessness, not offering solutions, but speaking to and from the mystery of humanity. Prayer is rhythm. Prayer is comfort. Prayer is disappointment. Prayer is words and shape and art around desperation and delight and disappointment and desire.
3: I clearly was in an, an alliterative mood the day that I wrote <laughs> <Sure>. that. <laughs> um, I mean, prayer in English comes from French, prier, to ask. And I think sometimes if it's understood that prayer is only held by those who have a devotion to a religious understanding, we have limited prayer. That's, that's a limited imagination about what prayer is because we all ask and we all come in contact with deep desire. And that in itself is an experience of prayer. And I think one of the benefits of being part of a tradition where you can find form um, to put your prayer in, is that you can feel like there's a container for the things that it can be difficult to contain. Um, so that book builds on a form of prayer that you find in the English language liturgical traditions. The form is called collect, which is just the same word as collect. It's just a, a posher, more prayerful way to say collect. <laughs> and the idea is that you're collecting your intention and arranging them. You're only, in this form, you're only allowed to ask one thing. And I think the form of collect is, in the English language, written tradition as robust as sonnet, because it's really clear. There's five steps to it. They don't have to follow a particular pentameter or any kind of rhythm, but they follow a progress. You name something. You name the god that you're speaking to. And then you say something more, a little bit like some character development. And then you name your request. And then you give a reason for your request, which folds back into the top. And then you finish with a little bird of praise. And so um, I'm sure there are many people who prayed this prayer recently um, on being who cultivate generous spaces of meeting. Bring me to the generous space of meeting at 1440 (laughs) because I want to be there. Amen. So, (laughs) so... (laughs) That's the, um, that's the kind of a way of going through that thing. <laughs> right. But what it requires is, is that it, take, it makes you ask, what do I want? One thing. And how do I wrap that into a form that holds it, that reveals something back to me rather than just a list of demands? And, and I think, I mean, not that you have to pray like this. I mean, half the time prayer is, oh, God. Or something without any words, the deep groans of our experience. But the form of prayer, and that's why I like the Stations of the Cross too, because you move with your body around and there's a little repeated piece that you can say if you want, you don't have to, but there is form to it. And I think in poetry, form can hold the things in us that feel formless. Mm -hmm. And we can find space within form um, that if we were to just say that we exist in spacelessness, we would never find that space. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we have ways in which we, we seek to, to name the things about us. Um, I remember once being part of a group and somebody, we were speaking about prayer and somebody said, um, my prayer is, I'd like to laugh again. And there was such vulnerability to say that to a room full of people. Mm-hmm. I'd like to laugh again, I'd like to laugh again. Five words, but there's an entire life wrapped into those small five words. And the compassion and kindness, even in this room, you're hearing an echo of that person's prayer. Um, and the compassion and kindness in that room, that was prayer. And if we can treat it as if God's listening, well, then we might find a way within which God is listening because of what we're creating in the room. And that goes beyond how you articulate a devotion. That goes into the ways in which you say, well, even if there isn't a God, well, I'll make one up in order to respond kindly into this room in a way that works well. And that's what I think prayer can be. It can be a deeply, dignifying thing for the desires that we wish to name.
1: And and Marilyn, you've taught contemplative practice to college students, and when you and I spoke before, you talked about doing contemplative practice with West uh, West Point cadets, and you often (coughs) write about Abba Jacob, Mm -hmm. who, I think, did you go to college with him? Is that right? uh You went to college with him, and then he grew up to be Abba Jacob. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I just wonder... um, yeah, what are you thinking about with this idea of prayer, words and prayer? I'm not sure. I don't have uh, c-
0: concrete answers to any of your questions, Krista, but um, I think in, in my intuition, prayer is less speaking than it is listening. And um, I th- feel... That um, my experience, my deepest experiences of prayer, have been experiences of shutting up and and listening. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, who is a minister, was at a at a retreat once. Um, he said, and the whole time during the retreat, they would talk and then they would go to their rooms and and pray. And he w- was always um, talking to God. And at one point during his long talks to God, he heard a voice say, shut up and let me love you. Um, And that for me is is what it is to be quiet, quiet enough to feel held, uh, to feel the embrace of the divine, to realize that I Am a part of something vaster than vast, and uh, and and to feel that, to recognize that, to feel thankful for it, and to hope that by opening myself to that awareness, that I am allowing some of that to come to come through me. I remember once during a meditation, I had the Image of being in a dark universe in which the only light was coming through people who allowed themselves to be open to the divine. We are the the way light. Oh wow! Whose poem is that? <laughs> we are the way light enters the universe. We are the way light enters the universe. And when we allow the love of the divine to enter us and come through us, we are offering something not only to ourselves, not only the answer to our own little prayers, but also we are lighting the way. Oh, this Naomi's poem, The Lighthouse. Was that your poem? Kate Ryan's poem, yeah, yeah, we are the lights, yeah,
4: oh,
1: uh, yeah. Let's, um, let's talk among ourselves for 20 minutes or so. I think, uh, I know, Chris, you told me this and I forgot. I, I'm starting over here. There is a mic, or there will be. Um, yeah, raise your hand and the mic will come to you. We're gonna start over on this side of the room and We'll move around a little bit. This is Tony Liu. I'll maybe introduce people as you see them. He's a very new, amazing addition to our team.
3: Hi, thank you, (coughs) excuse me. Podrick, you mentioned the Stations of the Cross and Shame in kind of two distinct contexts in the conversation. Uh, For me, growing up, Stations of the Cross and Shame were intricately connected. Um, so when you mentioned the Stations of the Cross as an act of protest, um, I wanted to hear more about that, and specifically um, how you came to approach the Stations of the Cross uh, as an act of protest and understanding it that way without also standing there um, in a place of shame or feeling like uh, participating in that as a prayer, um, you know, kind of puts you automatically into a, a kind of like convicted by shame, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Um, David White mentioned last night that the Irish language has a lot of flexibility within it. And so there's a word in Irish, "skaw," shelter. And that word can also be translated as shadow. And so I think there's great wisdom in that, in that when we look at any practice like the Stations of the Cross, for me, I found great shelter in it. But I know that it is not sufficient for all. Um, and be, for, for, for very good reason, because things have been used as weapons of torture against people. Um, I dragged myself around the Stations of the Cross. I was part of a charismatic prayer group. And you're always praying for each other. And like Marlon was saying, there's lots of words in those contexts. And one time into a small, sacred, silent moment, the idea occurred to me. I was 19, you should start to do the Stations of the Cross. And so I did, I just thought, well, okay. And I did them every day then for the next 10 years. And I mean, I was closeted, full of shame at that stage being put through Exorcisms and then subsequently reparative therapy for being gay. And these were hellish experiences. And in seeing a character of Jesus of Nazareth, who at the hands of Roman Empire was out on the edges of that empire being um, tortured because of a possibility of speaking about love in an imaginative way, I began to imagine for a small second that that kind of dignity might be available to me. And it gave me a language for understanding myself with the possibility of dignity and to think (coughs) even in the face of being told abhorrent things by people who were putting me through loud, noisy public exorcisms and then saying to me you needed to go to these awful, I don't even like calling it therapy because I like that word. (laughs) I don't want to demean the word therapy. Whatever these invasions of dignity were, um, the Stations of the Cross saved me. And... um, but I don't think that that has to be the same way anybody else gets saved. Other people might get saved through setting fire to something, <laughs> um, through shutting that book that has tormented you, through finding a different book. Um, so I, for me, I suppose I, I landed into my story, but I, I'm, I, I believe you that um, what, what for me has been a shelter for many others has been a shadow.
1: So... And this is Erin Kalaseko, who is our art director. We have an art director. And she's so amazing.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yep, I know. (laughs) Good morning, beautiful people. Thank you for being here. Um, I think both of you and your responses have tiptoed toward the question that I would like to ask and hope that maybe you could elaborate further on um, embodied prayer and how you would talk about that, which is kind of an oxymoron, right? (laughs) And possibly, if you feel moved, connecting it also to embodied poetry.
0: I I have to let you... I'm not quite sure I understand what you mean.
4: Okay, I'll try again. Um, So poetry can also be very heady. We we were talking about how, uh, as people who use words, we also know their limitations. And so what I'm seeking is really your thoughts, if you have any, around embodied prayer. I'm reminded of the Benedictine nuns who, who said that it takes our soul time to arrive whenever we travel somewhere And so that what helps you to arrive is to do an embodied prayer. And so I just wanted to know if you had thoughts around what that meant for you. Do you ever have movement when you're trying to write something? Does movement help you when you get stuck? So things along those lines, just trying to pick your brain a little.
3: Um, I have a t-shirt that says um, whiskey and yoga on it. and um, (laughs) um, I'm very faithful with one of those. (laughs) Um, and I so I did gymnastics um, ever since I was a child um, and so I have a very flexible back and in when I do go to yoga which isn't often enough despite the fact that I, I can do a back bend really easily I have to take a breath before I do some of these postures because I know that I might just start to cry when you open up the body and the, into open up the heart, some of those heart opening poses, um, they are vulnerable. And it's not because of an incapacity for the physical body to do that. It's because it, the body goes deeper into its own knowing, And I think yoga or any of these embodiments that you're speaking about cause us to pay attention to the way within which there's something deeper than the the narration that we're giving to what's going on. There's a deeper literature of the body that is telling us back to ourselves if we'll listen. And it's painful to do so sometimes. And I think... um, that is a really wise thing to do. I mean, I think the liturgical traditions across so many of the world's religions do that by kneeling or standing, and while that can seem um, suffocating, it is also a way to try to respond with the body, that it isn't just only standing or sitting, it is the fact that you're moving. Um, I've seen um, some really um, extraordinary poetry um, recited through sign, and I, I love that as a physical embodiment of poetry where you can see the, the rhyme and the rhythm and the alliteration of the body in front of you. And whether, you're, whether or not you can speak sign, um, nonetheless, you're brought into that. And so I, I think that that's another way within which embodied prayer and poetry um, can all help each other. I speak very bad sign language. And so sometimes I do, um, if I'm writing a poem, start to sign it out um, because it helps me to figure out where is this poem coming from? Because it's not coming from me. The poem is always coming, tr- coming through you, we hope. Uh, and so sometimes by messing around with other languages, especially ones you don't speak well, and especially embodied experiences like what you're speaking about, you can discover the way within which something deeper is doing, is, is doing its own work.
0: Um, <clears throat> th- this makes me think of uh, a-, a couple of things. One is... Um, experiences I've had of practicing walking meditation. Um, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh teaches uh, walking meditation in which with every step you plant love into the planet. And um, I've done these meditations with um, groups of, of Contemplatives and uh, have found it a, a very beautiful experience. Just planting love, consciously being with the soles of your feet, consciously making the soles of your feet do something more than just carry, carry you someplace. Um, um, so, so I and I have done this. Related to writing, when I've uh, reached an impasse in trying to write a poem and haven't been able to figure out a way around it, I have had the joyful experience of just putting the poem away and, and just giving up and going for a walk and not even thinking about it, just going for a walk, just being a body walking in the air and, uh, and coming back and sitting e- down again, and even though I haven't thought about the project, when I've returned, the impasse has been broken. And there was some other point I was going. Ah, Yes, walking a labyrinth. I think there's a labyrinth here. I saw it on the, on the map. Yeah. Walking a-, a labyrinth is another way of, I think, g- uh, giving up the urge to control and just being in the body and letting the body be the prayer. And then since Krista mentioned my friend, Abiyakab, he does uh, things, I guess he would call them meditations, in which he takes people on hikes and you're just sort of following him. And he's cutting across fields and walking through weeds up to your chest and you're walking around after him thinking, what is he doing? Does he have an idea? Is it is there a plan? No. It's a, the point of it is just you're following. You're just kind of with him and he's doing a completely random um march through the wilderness. Uh, and he he he's mentioned several times to me that he finds it amusing uh, <laughs> that people stay with him and follow
1: him. <laughs> I Where's the mic now? Tony, I think someone over here will. Hi, I'm going back to what Krista
2: was saying about apocalypse being an uncovering. And this is really for all of you. Um, I had this experience when I went to Berlin for the first time, as a, um, I'm married to a Jew and I've always been really uh, attached to the stories from the Holocaust and how people can survive things that you can't even wrap your mind around. And I'm wondering, because Germany has rebuilt itself on this idea of transparency and living your horrible truths and accepting them and putting them out in the open for everybody to see and it seems like in the US because we're Puritans we don't we don't want to talk about these things and um, I'm thinking that maybe what we're doing now with this horrible time that we're living through politically um, that maybe we're starting to embrace our horrible truce, you know, with civil rights. And, and I just, I think you can take hope from that. And I'm just wondering what you all think about that.
3: Um, I, I really do value um, Apocalypse. Uh, because, I mean, it's a word from the theater. It's a bit of campery really in this, And we understand that the theater is telling us the truth. Uh, to uncover, to show what's already there. Um, sometimes when you hear people use the word apocalyptic in language, we, they're using it to mean predicting a dystopian future when apocalypse is just saying, here's what we've been ignoring, and, or here's what our systems have prevented us deliberately sometimes from acknowledging that's the truth, and that's why it hurts. It's much worse than a dystopian future. It's because it's saying it's here already, and sometimes in certain circumstances, something awful might come to light and there might be a widespread sense of, isn't that terrible that this kind of thing is beginning right now? And people who've been living through that all along are saying, yeah. there's nothing new. Yeah. Like, the only surprise is your surprise. <laughs> and, um, and that can be a frustrating thing um, to feel like some people think that whatever atrocity is happening it has only recently begun when other people have been surviving with great dignity and fortitude and protest the whole way throughout it. Sometimes in those contexts we hear people say things like, oh, you know, we need to be a voice for the voiceless. And the people who've been using their voices for decades have been saying, we haven't been voiceless at all, you just haven't been listening. And this is the apocalypse that we need is to hear what's happening. I think contemporary American poetry is one of them at, at an extraordinarily exciting phase um, to hear the ways within which the poets that have always been speaking are, are continuing to speak and the publishing that's happening is overwhelming and frightening and brilliant because it isn't necessarily proposing a solution. It is in many situations saying, here's what's happening now. So uh, Morgan Parker, Danes Smith, Kaveh Akbar, Claudio Rankin, these well-established and emerging poets, um, Ocean Vuong, they are doing such amazing things to uncover what is already there. And I take great consolation in that. It's a frightening thing. (laughs) And that's good Uh, because not all fear will kill us. Some of it will save us.
0: Mm. I I just uh, finished on on the plane yesterday reading a novel which I recommend very highly it's by the german writer Jenny Erpenbach. Erpenbeck I think it is uh, it's called Go Went Gone it's a very fine novel and it's a plot essentially is a it takes place in in berlin a retired uh, university professor reads something about a, a protest um, by some African refugees. And he becomes curious about them, and goes to meet them and interview them. And the plot is his developing relationship with these these refugees. And um, of course, he learns their stories, which are harrowing. But he also, because of them, confronts the legal system that has been put in place to keep them out and it's that uncovering uh, the apocalypse which is happening everywhere now the, the, all of these laws that are put in place they if you if you arrive in a in Italy and uh, you then can only be dealt with by Italian the Italian legal system, even if you wind up in Germany or Sweden, you have to go back to Italy to have any and it's, it's just so wrong. and reading this novel just rubs your face in the, the, the ways our nations are working I'm sorry, I, I'm not articulate about this, but um, this novel shocked me. And um, the the protagonist, this German professor, he knows about the Holocaust. He knows about the division of Germany. So he knows history that these refugees, they've never heard of Hitler, but he has. And when he looks at their stories, he learns more about his nation's history. It's a it's a really powerful novel. Go, went, gone, by Jenny Erpenbeck, E R P E N B E C K. I think. Um, I don't know. There's there's so much avoidance of things that make people uncomfortable. I just. Read about a school system in Minnesota that has decided to remove to kill a mockingbird and and um, Huckleberry Finn from its curriculum because it makes people uncomfortable, or they make people uncomfortable. And you know, I, I understand that discomfort. I've been, uh strong voice defending Huckleberry Finn uh, when African-American families have asked for it to be removed from the curriculum because it makes their kids uncomfortable to discuss it in a classroom. But there, there's, it, it's necessary, I think, for us to submit to the uncomfortableness of, of looking at the truth. And it's uh, a truth may make us free, but it will also make us cringe, and we have to submit to cringing. Um, I, I think it's important to cringe. Oh.
1: Hmm. We're, we're We're over here this time. Tony, can you or maybe there's a hand or oh, sorry, I think you've already you've already spoken, didn't you? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay.
2: Hi. This question is uh, for um, Patrick. So, in reference to your comment about, um, you know, your teacher stating that, uh, you know, that no one in the class spoke Irish, but in fact, you did, and not trusting your intuition. I'm curious, in a world where there's a lot of noise, how have you, and this question is actually for both of you, how have you been able to, to trust, to build that intuition and to trust that voice? What does that practice look like for you?
3: Huh. That's, a, that's a lovely question. Um, I think partly for me that's why I turn to poetry because poetry allows for so much empty space on the page and um, that poetry has the humility I think, to not try to be everything. And so there's a tentative nature to writing sparse words on a page where you know that the page always will hold much more from yourself, never mind anybody who might read it. And um, that goes deep into the practice for me, that you don't have to try to say everything, um, but that you do want to say, but if I want to say something, what is the something? And to remove adjectives and adverbs and you know to remove all these things that try to shore it up and to just say just say it um, and that is a vulnerable thing I remember when I got one of the first book of poetry that I was getting published back the publisher sent me some copies and um, I didn't open them for three weeks I was because pet- they sent it to me a month or two in advance I was petrified at the level of raw that I had put into it and um, because that for poetry for me, is the possibility of saying, I don't have much to say, so I'm publishing mostly a book of blank pages. <laughs> <laughs> but that which I do want to say, I've put space around it. And, and that's raw for me. And, um, but I don't know any other way to do it, um, to listen to that. Yeah. Waking up early helps too, I think. Yeah. Or staying up late. <laughs> but uh, time alone uh, being lonely um, all of those things are absolutely necessary to have a relationship the Irish word for lonely is and it comes from the same word for grave and so loneliness is a small taste of death which is a good thing because we will all die and uh, I think poetry is part of the conversation with that also
1: i yeah. um. You're allowed to be speechless. Um, So I may be getting the sides wrong, but let's do something over her.
0: Thanks. I just want to thank you for what you're doing here. Um, There's a quote by Wallace Stevens that says, you may not find the news in poetry, but many people have died for lack of what is found in poetry. So thank you for this conversation about poetry and and life. Um, You've both talked about how poetry creates space within forms, and this morning during a meditation session I felt that I was creating space within my mind and body. So I wonder how your contemplative practice and your poetry create a space for you as a way of being in the world, as a way of being awake in the world, and for your activism
4: in the world.
1: Marilyn, you want to start with that one? Uh, let's see
0: um, first of my first thought is the the safe space created by form. If you choose to write in form, the form gives you a kind of safe space you can you can reach out from behind the form and say something really hot and then pull back. And um, I have a long poem about uh, the the lynching of Emmett Till, which is written in a a very tight form. I don't think I could have written about this subject if I hadn't written about it in a form that offered me a kind of protection. And I find, I don't know how uh, several of the poets you mentioned um, are are writing in free verse about really difficult subjects. I don't know how they do that. Hmm. I don't think I could do that without, I don't think I could write about such flaming topics without having a place to withdraw to. Hmm. Um, Let me see what we're your Your question had a lot of different your, your contemplative
1: your contemplative practice, how that uh, works with your writing and with your life um, i I'm not sure because uh,
0: uh, i don't don't know whether I can separate it from who I am it's just it's just essential. And um, I find that learning how to be quiet, uh, living in silence, becomes a way of opening the door to something beyond me. I feel sincerely when I'm writing that I'm connecting with something beyond me. I'm, I'm sometimes able to write about things that I don't know, things that surprise me. Oh, this—I'm sorry. This is completely an aside. But Wally Lamb was a very great novelist. Has a novel called—I I know this much is true—and his where his story about this novel is that the title came first, I Know This Much Is True. And he didn't know where, what the title meant. And it, he wrote this novel over the course of a couple of years. And when he got to the end of the novel and wrote the last sentence, that was the last sentence. He didn't know that that's where it was going. And he said when he wrote, I Know This Much Is True, he fell on his knees and gave thanks because this was beyond him. And I think, I think writing and poetry offers you small versions of that experience pretty often. Oh, I didn't know, I didn't know I knew that. Yeah. I didn't know that's where it was going. I'm learning something. I'm opening myself to something Larger than myself, some truth that I can share that I didn't know. So I—I I think that's. I'm sorry, I'm not used to talking
2: <laughs> publicly.
1: You're doing a I'm very very a quiet laugh. person.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um. I've gotten angrier as I've gotten older because I think for when I was younger I was so frightened and I was so um tormented by the religious environment within which I grew up and then the exorcisms and the therapies that <clears throat> um that just uh systematized fear in me and I I'm 42 and I'm still learning not to be afraid but I'm I'm getting angrier which I'm glad at because that is the opening up and I think that For me, um, activism comes back to what Krista was speaking about at the start, which is story, to find a way within which to tell the stories that are being suppressed and to believe them, to practice the radical, radical thing of believing something to be true, especially when there has been systems to deny the truth of it. And we can be surprised into that um, enormously. the, the reason why I left reparative therapy, I'd been going for a few years, and it was awful, and it was a failure of language and religion and psychology, the whole thing was terrible, uh, he was just making stuff up, and I didn't realize this, because I was young, and I had no confidence in myself that I knew anything about religion or psychology, but I spoke four languages, not great, but I've always loved language, and um, uh, eventually, I screwed up the courage to say to him because he—he was very the therapist was very erotically focused and would be saying, you know, were you aroused by this woman or by that woman? Did you see that film? Did, were you aroused by her? It was—it was really crude and it was—it was predatory on the women that he was asking me about about my uh, hypothetical arousal towards. And uh, eventually, I said to him, I don't even know that I want to want to have sex with women because he was always talking about. And then he said to me, Padraig, your problem is language." And unbeknownst to him, we were on my territory now. (laughs) (laughs) And and actually, unbeknownst to me. And he said, your problem is language. You are talking about wanting to have sex. Have is a selfish verb. You should want to give sex. And the conjugation of that sentence was one of the poorest conjugations (laughs) I have ever heard in my life. And I said to him, no, it's not. And I got up and left. That was it. That was the end. I've got a sonnet about it. Can I read the sonnet? And it was the way within which language saved me. And I, had to, I got the number 16 bus from the south side of Dublin back up to the north side of Dublin. And I was, being, I was in this therapy because I needed to be in the context of my work. And I could tell nobody, but it didn't matter, because language was sufficient. And it was so exciting. I recently, I'm writing a sequence called Seven Deadly Sonnets. And I have um, Seven son- Deadly Sonnets? Seven, de- seven Deadly Sonnets playing with Seven Deadly Sins. And I, there is a phrase in Latin, ex nihilo, nihilo fut, from, from nothing, nothing comes. And I don't like that phrase because somehow something came from nothing. <laughs> I think that's what the book of Genesis is about. But um, anyway. <laughs> I, if anybody here has Latin, I would love you to help me. I want to write a, a sonnet called From Nothing Everything Came. Ex nihilo omnibus fit, I think, but I have no idea, really. So here's, here's the sonnet, and it's about that moment. Believe me, I'm the last person to believe me. I believed in danger from the first day I could think. I learned to speak by screaming, some of it aloud. And my first word in two languages was remember. My first curse too, or was it a promise? I stuck to it, still do. I could feast on sorrows and stand up empty. When I stood up against my faithfulness, I ran. I flew, I panicked. I grew more frightened than I'd ever been. In the beginning was a word I heard. Then I heard another word that made me listen, made me stand. Who said it? Not a man, that's for sure. Men were too busy teaching me their sure and frightened ways of purity. Who whispered it? Who said it? Who worked that word of freedom into me? Who freed me? Who believed me?
0: Mm.
1: (laughs) You know, I just want to say, Marilyn, um, when I first met you, we met, we also did a live conversation, which is kind Mm -hmm. of unusual, um, in Asheville, North Carolina. And you said you were really nervous. And I was just i was so amazed that you were nervous, because I just was so honored that you were there. And, and I love having you in this conversation again, too. Thanks. Thanks. Even though you think you're not a good talker. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, to close, I thought um, I might ask each of you to read something. And, and now you're going to be our poet in the morning, too, so we'll hear more of you. Um, I was quite taken with The Children's Moon. Um, this is another book you published recently in Mrs. Nelson's in Mrs. class, Mrs. which um, was about your mother. You want to tell the story of that book? Mm. My, my mother was uh, an elementary
0: school teacher, and my dad was in the Air Force and moved around a lot. And in 1954, he was stationed on a base in Salina, Kansas. And my mother taught second grade in in, in a school in Salina. And uh, she had, we have in the family album the class picture, the official class picture of my mother's class in June 1954. She's seated at the teacher's desk smiling and surrounded by 20 second graders, all of them white. And she was very aware that she was making history. She was a black teacher of white children in 1954. And every time over the years I've looked at this photograph, I've thought would be really nice to figure out a way to explore the experiences of these children. Having a black teacher at that point, and uh, a, a few years ago, I I invited twenty of my friends, white poets of a certain age, to uh, write in the voices of those children, and each of them picked a child, gave the child a name, wrote up a backstory for the child. Everybody got really excited about it. <laughs> And, uh, and um, we produced a, a little, I wrote some poems in the voice of the teacher. And the rest of the poems are in the voices of these 20 children, some of whom have no idea about race. They're second graders. Some of them are going home to parents who are asking, you yeah, well, what did that teacher say today? Um, and um, it was, a, every time I read this book, it gives me joy. Um, that was a real effort of love. And the cover was, the cover art was painted by a second grader um, specifically for this. So um, I'm f- proud of that too. Yeah, and so I'd be glad I, to
1: read the. I think that so. I wonder if you'd read this The Children's Moon, which you wrote, which was your mother, um, Mrs. Nelson. And I think also one thing that was interesting about the book is uh, we, we, we look at a picture and it's, it's, a, it's white students and a black teacher in 1954, but they weren't all thinking about race, right? There's all kinds of things going on. Mm-hmm. And it's also how we, don't, we imagine all kinds of things going on in other people's heads. And, and I think that was probably true, that mix. And uh, anyway, here's this, the one you wrote, which... I just love, and then I'm going to ask Podrick to read something as well. Okay. The Children's Moon. The
0: Children's Moon is the moon that you see sometimes in the morning. You see a faint moon in the sky. In my navy shirtwaist dress and three-inch heels, my pearl clip-ons and newly red-rinsed curls, I smoothed on lipstick, lipstick marked my girls, saluted and held thumbs up to my darling Mel, and drove myself to school for the first day. Over the schoolyard, a silver lozenge dissolved into the morning's blue cauldron. Enter 27-year-old white children. Look, children, I said as they found their desks. The children's moon, a special good luck sign. We pledged allegiance and silently prayed. George Washington watched sternly from his frame. I turned to the blackboard and wrote my name. I thought, I heard, she's the real teacher's maid. I thought. I heard echoes of history. But when I turned, every child in the room had one hand up asking, "What is the children's moon?" Mm-hmm. Oh. I- <laughs>
1: Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You want to say anything else? No? Wonderful. Pardon? You want to say, did, you want, did you want to say something else? I was thinking of saying something else, but I don't have to. It's, <laughs> you can. You can. <laughs> okay. Well, Padraig, I wondered if you'd just read um, these, these last two paragraphs from, uh, is this the introduction to the prayer book? I think it is. Oh, yeah. Anyway.
3: Yeah, it's from an essay called Oremus, uh, meaning in Latin, let us pray. Prayer, like poetry, like breath, like our own names, has a fundamental rhythm in our bodies. It changes. It adapts. It varies from the canon. It sings. It swears. It is syncopated by the rhythm underneath the rhythm, the love underneath the love, the rhyme underneath the rhyme, the name underneath the name, the welcome underneath the welcome, the prayer beneath the prayer. So let us pick up the stones over which we stumble, friends, and build altars. Let us listen to the sound of breath in our bodies. Let us listen to the sounds of our own voices, of our own names, of our own fears. Let us name the harsh light and soft darkness that surround us. Let's claw ourselves out from the graves we've dug. Let's lick the earth from our fingers. Let us look up and out and around. The world is big and wide and wild and wonderful and wicked. And our lives are murky, magnificent, malleable and full of meaning. Oremus, let us pray.